0: Hey day listeners, welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk Show, where we get to know technology leaders on a personal front. We also talk about their careers, some of the big challenges they've faced and how they've overcome those challenges. Please help others find the show by rating us on your favorite podcast engine. Hello ladies and gentlemen, my next guest has received personal feedback for his disruptive innovation from Steve Wozniak and Sir Richard Branson. And one of the top five CIOs in Asia Pac in 2016. He was also responsible for the 10 gig rollout for the city of Adelaide, which is a world first for cities. Please welcome Peter All, CIO of Central Coast Council. In this podcast, we talk about Peter's background, smart cities, women in technology, and much, much more. Welcome to Tech Leaders Talk podcast. I'm your host, Ernst Pelser. Peter, how are you doing today?
1: G'day Ernst, um, doing really well, thank you, here in sunny Sydney. Um, lovely to meet you, uh, looking forward to having a chat today.
0: Awesome, I've been looking forward to it today. So Peter, do you just want to give us a few minutes of background, introduction of yourself? Sure, yeah, look, um,
1: I'm a country boy from the southeast of South Australia, uh, I was brought up on a about a 10,000-acre property um, uh, as a child. So, you know, my daily commute to school was about an hour and a half on a bus. Um, Yeah, quite an interesting background, but I guess the beauty of having that sort of environment to grow up in is it, it really helped me understand the importance of of problem solving. So I think in my industry, having that sort of background was um, really quite important. So I have always been a South Australian up until recently when I moved to um, New South Wales, but started my career actually as an opal miner. So I started studying nuclear medicine and didn't really enjoy it and thought, maybe there's a better life out there to do something a little bit different. And somehow I ended up in Cooper Pedy, which is in the middle of Australia, um, making bombs every morning and um, mining at about 76 feet underground um, as an opal miner. So that was supposed to be for for about six weeks. I think at, a, at about the 12 month mark, I had enough of it. So I came back to Adelaide. Um, And started studying technology, but put myself through studies by working in the hospitality industry with the Stanford chain. So I was there for about seven years. So again, similar to my background in farming, also having that customer service sort of background in hotels um, I've always said you see the best and the worst of people in customer service. It's quite interesting. Always the best at the early times of the nights, and sometimes the worst as it gets later into the night and a bit more alcohol is consumed. So it's a, a very interesting environment to be around. So I was, I was working in the hospitality industry as a waiter, but also at the same time at night putting myself through some studies in IT I was actually promoted into, um, I guess, the supervisor or team leader of the maintenance department across the hotel. So that's sort of, you know, the group that does all of the plant management and the air conditioning and, you know, managing any upgrades to the asset itself. So that was quite interesting. Nothing to do with technology, but I guess, again, they could see some some benefit in my problem solving sort of techniques. Um, and then at, at, at one stage, the... Back then, that was probably in my early 20s, the IT manager left and the CEO came up to me and said, oh, I heard you're studying technology. Why don't you um, be the IT manager? And I said, okay, let's do that. So I did that for a couple of years and realized, gee, I had no idea how to be an IT manager. So I thought I'd better, I thought I'd better go out and actually um, learn the trade and, and actually go back a bit so I could actually not plateau my career. So. That sort of brought me into local government, spent about seven years with the city of Tea Tree Gully, which is quite a large council to the northeast of Adelaide. And really there I was in sort of a service delivery function, looking after customer service and infrastructure, IT infrastructure, really learning my trade, particularly around telecommunications infrastructure, really quite fascinating. And I really you know, really valued that time because as I developed my career, I could always draw back on those experiences when I'm trying to motivate staff to, to to let them know I've been there as well, you know, so I think that's really important and certainly a part of my nature is that authenticity to ensure that people can see that, you know, I'm just a human at, at the end of the day. Moved into state government, you know, was in a chief information officer role in my early 30s, which... Was quite interesting, particularly being in a state government where most of the chief information officers at that stage were probably, you know, in their fifties or, or or older. So it was a bit of like, who's this young kid on the block thinking they can be a chief information officer in their early thirties? And I, I hope over time, you know, they realised that I was actually just trying to do the right thing, and, and you know trying to get on with it so after a period of time i i think people got used to me and got used to my nature as far as trying to make change and and innovate and transform and stuff like that so my career was sort of splashed through a number of different sort of engagements with both local government and state government and now i am moved up to new south wales as the chief information officer for for central coast council
0: okay thank you for sharing that so your decision to go for technology. What, what triggered that? It was after I came back
1: from Cuba Petty, um, I was very, very fortunate to have a fantastic mentor in my grandfather. My grandfather was an incredibly impressive man. He won an order of Australian merit for work that he did around his history work. He was a historian. He wrote a number of books, none of which made any money. It was all for the greater good. And I was fortunate enough to have him in my life at a time that I probably needed some guidance. And ironically, he said to me, oh, Peter, these computer things, they're starting to take off. I think they're going to be the future. And I think you should go do a course in computing. And here's some money and I've booked you into this course and now go do it. Now, it was only a, a, a you know a, a one week course, but I guess I credit him to really having the the insight and foresight to... To, to understand that this is was going to be an industry that's going to change everything and it certainly has so that was the beginning
0: okay interesting thank you what
1: was your first gadget oh gee i uh my first i was always fascinated with pulling things apart so be even before technology gadgets and i'm not really a gadget person i'm more uh it probably more came from an engineering sort of mindset i guess So one of my first gadgets was finding old watches and stuff like that and having a a precision screwdriver and actually pulling them apart, pulling all the cogs out and then trying to get them back together and make them work. And I found that really quite therapeutic. So any of those sort of fine detail type activities, I found back then as a young fella, quite interesting. Um, But look, gadget-wise, I was always interested in switching and routing and telecommunications infrastructures. My home had, you know, Cisco routers and switches that I was playing around with and I'd set up networks and break them. And I was really interested in making sure I understood how things work and getting into the, to the detail that sat behind that. So nothing too sexy as far as gadgets were concerned. Probably very practical.
0: It's interesting. So it doesn't actually sound like gadgets triggered your progression into the IT industry, where I think a lot of people that I talked to, they they had specific gadgets that they were interested, in, which triggered that flow. There, let's talk about a little bit about your work experience. You mentioned that you went into government. Was that sort of a planned move or something that just kind of happened?
1: Yeah, it definitely was planned. Towards the latter part of my twenties, I got some really good advice. From a from a mentor that I was speaking to at that stage, and and they suggested that I develop a career plan, and this is advice I give to all people I mentor now, and it was really the thing that changed uh, my career most. I think you know, sitting down and actually putting some effort into developing a bit of a plan about you know where do they where do they want to be in five years time, where do they want to be in ten years time, and where do they want to be in twenty years time. And at that stage, I think I was around 27 or 28, and I gave myself a goal to become Chief Information a chief information Officer by the time I was 45. And I achieved it at 33, I think. So um, just having that plan in place, and then when I made decisions about my career, I could reflect on, is this decision going to get me to my goal? And I think having that plan in place and having that mindset around, when I'm making career decisions, how does that line up? To what I want to achieve in my career was really really helpful, and it's, it, it gave me that sort of that sort of bedrock to go back to. To go right, even this, if even if this particular move may be seen as a step backwards, or you know, when I took a role, put my hand up for an acting role, people go, "Why did you want to do that?" And I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, "Well, I know why I want to do it because there's a gap in my skill set at the moment, and I need to hone that. And the best way to do that is get, uh, to to get experience." So I would say not just the move into government was deliberate but everything that i've done in my career has been quite deliberate and i put a lot of thought into the decisions that i make about my
0: career so the decision into going into government was that tied to the smart cities or why exactly government then
1: yeah look my my, my first move into state government was into the department of treasury and finance so you probably couldn't get a more boring agency to actually have your first foray into government. A bunch of accountants, lovely as they may, may be, it wasn't exactly a dynamic place to work. So I may have messed that up as far as having such an innovative mind and going into quite a bureaucratic environment. But having said that, I guess, again, it gave me some really important building blocks around, particularly around political relationships, you know, I was a chief information officer for the Department of Treasury and Finance, but also looking after the Department of Premier and Cabinet as part of that agency through an SLA and a shared services type arrangement. So I had very com- a constant and common contact with the Premier, the Under Treasurer, the Deputy Premier, those sorts of people and their and their officers. So you know, understanding that environment, I think in hindsight was a, a fantastic move. So certainly I would love to say I had this grand plan that eventually things were gonna turn into a smart city or, you know, um, really what I would say is, you know, reform that's focused on customer outcomes. And that's really why we'll probably talk about that a bit later, but that's really where I see smart cities um, moving to already, already there at the moment. But yeah, the first move into state government was really trying to get into that big macro, you know, big, large agency to to, to get exposed and and push myself out of my comfort zone.
0: So with regards to you moving into the government, I think historically people look at the government as being quite uh, politically. Now, you're quite an innovative person. How did you find trying to implement things in the government when you started there? Yeah, incredibly
1: uh, challenging. It's not the sort of environment that people like me that are quite innovative, thriving, incredibly challenging to push through some of the risk aversion. But I I guess part of that was challenging for me as well. So innovating within an environment that is non accepting of change um, was part of the fascination and part of the challenge which i really embraced having said that i think probably my first real opportunities to truly innovate were when i moved back into local government um, with the city of charles sturt they were really keen to do some different things had a fantastic ceo and i reported to a fantastic director at that stage who was really keen and, and and gave me really free reign to do some stuff so they'd seen what I've been trying to do in state government and just wanted some of that. So we were able to really push the boundaries quite quickly and really think differently about how we solve problems. And I I guess the most fascinating innovation that I do or I love to do is when it relates back to customer outcomes, relate back to a problem that needs to be solved. So when you're actually working in local government, um, or state governments, you know, there's always a customer at the end of it. Um, that's a really good opportunity for you to do something for them, which is incredibly exciting.
0: So I'm going to pull a little bit towards the work that you've done in Adelaide because you've already touched on having the customer in mind. Talk to us a bit about Claire in the government and then also how you managed to um, convince people to work with that mindset. Yeah look
1: uh, certainly Claire's story was a fantastic artifact for for explaining or, or demystifying what technology could do for people Now before Claire there was there was Anna and there was Dave and and, and those those two personas existed in state government so the idea of actually cobbling together, I guess, a customer journey from the lens of a customer wasn't new to me. But I think it's Claire's story that actually had the first set of real real traction. And for those that are listening today, Claire's story was an artifact that came out of a pretty comprehensive consultation process to really understand what customers would want in a modern city. Um, so that when we started to design strategy or solutions, we could relate that back to um, that type of a story. So Claire was a fictitious person that lived in New York City um, and, you know, was thinking about coming to Australia. How could you use information or data from afar um, to um, to get her to rethink um, opportunities that existed, and in this case, Adelaide, um, from afar? So really exciting ways to take another fact like that to... Um, the political environment so they could understand. That in, in in not one part of Claire's story, there's a discussion about technology. It's all about data, insights, outcomes, her, Claire, you know. And I guess I knew that it had really um, delivered some traction in a couple of ways. One, I had an opportunity to pitch to Bloomberg th- uh, Philanthropies when I was in New York City, and they were absolutely blown away by it. They'd said they'd never seen anything like it in the world. Um, and I actually thought this seems pretty, uh, a pretty simple way of articulating things. Um, they were really, really fascinated about the impact that it had to, to demystify smart cities, information data, however you wanna look at it and put it through the lens of a customer. Um, and I guess secondly, um, at, points in the to- at points in time when we're delivering solutions at the city of Adelaide, customers within the business, not in the IT department, but outside would say, how would Claire think about this? Um, and you sort of know you knew that you've um, actually knitted that into their psyche at that stage, when they're starting to go, every time they're doing something, they're thinking about, well, how would the customer think about this? And I think that was probably one of my more proud moments or one of my proudest moments in my career when um, it wasn't about technology. it was actually starting to retrain people's minds about putting the customer at the center and really, Everyone talks about that now, which is great. I think it's fantastic. But, you know, having that to sort of anchor back to so people can go, I remember in Claire's story when she was trying to do this. Now I can see how this is coming to fruition. So um, that was a really interesting way of um, delivering, uh, I guess, what I would call a video strategy or a, or a visual strategy, you know, where people who not necessarily want to understand all the tin tacks that sit behind technology could actually understand the, the meaningful impact that it could have. And certainly, you know, um, City of Adelaide elected members um, were incredibly um, passionate and supportive of, of doing things differently. They recognised the opportunity early around Adelaide being geographically isolated and the importance of actually doing things differently to attract new investment into Adelaide. And uh, certainly Claire's story um, helped them understand the importance in the smart city space of that agenda particularly, and getting back to really solving human problems.
0: Okay, interesting. Backtracking probably a little bit, where does your interest in smart cities come from?
1: Yeah, look, I think having come from being in this industry for such long, a long period of time, I've always been fascinated with data. And in fact, um, also data and services to customers. Even when I was back at Tea Tree Gully, many, many, you know, my early 20s, we, we delivered one of the first Wi-Fi networks to a public realm in my early 20s. Now I'm 47 now, so that's 25 years ago. So back then that was highly unusual, all right? But that's a smart city project. You know, nowadays, but back then it wasn't considered that. But we were thinking about things in ways that were quite different. You know, it was about, and really that project came out of imagine if you were a family on a weekend and you were sitting out in the park in front of the council chambers and you wanted to watch your kids play some sport, um, but you also had to do your emails at the same time. And it was at a time that mobile phone technology was pretty rudimentary. And the, certainly, the speeds from the mobile phone network were quite slow. So, having high-speed internet actually been broadcast 25 years ago out into a park in front of in front of a council was incredibly innovative. So, I think it's those types of projects that have always been. They weren't called smart city projects back then, but if you looked at a Wi-Fi project now in a city, it would be called a smart city project. But again, smart city projects for me. Are, um, you know, using technology to actually solve customer problems. And I think that's something I've always been fascinated by.
0: You've really kind of touched on this, but what does Smart Cities mean to you? Okay, and where would you like to see it go? Yeah,
1: it's a fantastic question. I get asked this very, very often. Smart Cities means to me, the ability for us to curate information and give it back to customers to make their own decision. Okay, so if you're looking at an environmental sensor, for example, you know, imagine bringing that information together to look at there's a particular part of the city that has a high pollen count and you might have a you might have a child that's got asthma. So getting that information out to customers to say, Hey, be aware if you go into this part of the city, there's a high pollen count here at the moment and think about that in the context of of, of your child and their and their asthma. So for me it's making sure we're making that connection back to choice. So when we looked at smart parking, for example, in Adelaide, it wasn't about putting in, you know, sexy infrastructure, it was about, we did the business case that sat behind it, and it was really about focusing on problems around retail attraction in the city. And when we spoke to people, and I guess this is a really important part that a lot of technologists don't do, is actually speak to people, and actually ask them what they need or want. But when we spoke to people, um, you know, really getting a clear understanding of one of the key reasons they weren't going into the city is because, one, it was very difficult to find the car park. And two, if they overstayed just for a few minutes, they end up with a car parking fine. And so we thought different, and we were in competition with a Westfield that was out in the suburbs. You know, so from a retail point of view, how could we change that experience using technology? So effectively giving the control back of that car parking asset to customers to make their own choice. So Park Adelaide, which is now fully deployed, you know, gives control back to people to wayfind find their way to a car park in the city. So as you're driving in, it'll assist you to take you directly to where there's a car park that's there and it'll allow you to top up as well if you're running just a few minutes late. So if you're a mum and dad and you're, you know, you've got an arm full of bags trying to race back to your car, again, thinking about Claire's story, you know, again, it's putting yourself in this in in the, in the shoes of the person that's actually trying to consume the service. We don't want people in that situation to come back to a car parking fine. We want to give them the option to top up a little bit, and maybe they only get to do it a couple of times because we still need you know movement through the city as well. But it's again, it's giving control back to customers. So back to your question answered around what does it mean to me? Well, everything that I've done, everything I've tried to achieve as far as my leadership in in smart cities has been very much focused on solving problems or focused on customer outcomes.
0: And what do you think is next for smart cities? Well, what would you like to see being implemented?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's about time we made some decisions around scaling some projects. I still think there's an awful lot of people that are piloting stuff. And I think uh, opportunities exist across the nation now for a a more common sharing platform around what projects have worked, where's the insight, what's the return on investment and how people can get things off the ground quite quickly and rapidly to scale. So I'd like to see more scale projects, but I'd also like to see that relationship back to, to people. One of the real challenges is customers don't care about geographical boundaries they don't particularly know they're in one council area or one city or another. You know, if you're traveling from one spot to another, you don't want to download a different app just because you've crossed the border or just because you've crossed from one council to another. So I think there is a massive opportunity that exists to start to unify some of the experience and start to, I guess, you know, put the swords away and actually start to think differently about how do we start to bring the experience together for people? You know, if I'm travelling and I'm going, you know, away on a holiday with my family, I don't want to be thinking about I've got to download an app to do parking in this different geographical location. Wouldn't it be fantastic about a national framework or a national app, a national standard, so everyone can just plug into it and you've got sort of one platform for persons mm-hmm. that you can... Um, uh, Used to consume your service, so that's where I think the the next wave of innovation has to happen.
0: And do you think that's starting to happen or not yet?
1: One hundred percent, it's 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 starting to happen. Um, I'm certainly on a number of national task forces that are speaking about this topic specifically and talking about ways that we can develop standards people can replicate, but also looking at ways that we can, you know, really start to show some leadership around sharing. You know. At most events that I speak at, I talk through the concept of being open for business. You know, I'm here, I've got some knowledge, I don't know everything, but whatever I know I can share, you're welcome to it. You know, so I think if we all started to think like that and how do we actually get information out and I think, you know, it's like anything that's a big issue, it starts with a few people who create a movement and I think that movement's occurring.
0: I love your statement about the government getting out of the way. That must have shaken some uh, trees in the beginning.
1: Yeah, the, the, I think that was probably a thought bubble at a point, and it, it sort of stuck, and I think I said it out loud, and I probably thought I was thinking it. Uh, but it, it sort of makes sense, and it is quite confronting because, you know, when you speak to a government about government getting out of the way, they go, well, what does that mean? But what it actually means is, uh, obviously what it means is, you know, the the best games of sport are when the referee rarely blows the whistle, okay? So, and I think you still need a referee in a game of sport, okay? But it's about, I guess, the concept of government having enough regulation in place to create a safe and vibrant environment, but not having to put a flag on play every time something goes wrong. How can we... You know entrust people to use information and data better customers are really smart you know they're 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 readily consuming services information data now in their personal life i just think it's this shape shift that's going to happen over the next period of time where governments are going to catch up to what it is that customers are actually looking for so government getting out of the way was a little bit controversial i will say that but at its heart it's about you know how do we provide again those services in a seamless way, so customers don't have to, you know, be disturbed in, 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 in their daily lives.
0: Okay, interesting. I do like the whole thinking about, especially in the government space about, you know, considering your customer and learning from the customer and then building a solution around the, the customer. What are those big wins that come out of the Adelaide program? You know, you talked about the smart parking, I know the smart lighting was going on. What else?
1: Yeah, probably the the pinnacle of my career, certainly from a project perspective. And the thing that I'm personally most proud of was um, the 10 gigabit Adelaide project in Adelaide. So 10 gigabit Adelaide was a, a project that's never been done before in the world. And in fact, the. The global head of KPM, oh, so the global head of infrastructure in KPMG, who works out of London, wrote a wrote an article on it. That was was I was incredibly proud to read that effectively said every city in the world should copy this. And it came out of Adelaide, and it actually came out of my wife's art studio in the Adelaide Hills. You know, as a as a, again another thought bubble about solving problems. But I guess. At its core, that project was again focused on problem solving. And I put skin in the game by, you know, I dedicate a day a week or a day a fortnight to walk around the streets of Adelaide and speak to customers, speak to businesses, ask them, what's your problem? Why aren't you growing? What would allow you to employ more people? And they said, Pete, we can see when kids are getting home at four o'clock in the afternoon, we're trying to get to our cloud service our productivity is dropping when kids get home from school at four o'clock in the afterno- afternoon. And of course, Ernst, when kids get home from school, they start their homework straight away. No, they don't. They fire up Fortnite or Netflix or YouTube or something like that. So effectively, the problem was crafted in a way that t- two things, the price point of connectivity was really high in Adelaide. But secondly, this idea that if you're a company that's really focused on data and data movement in your business or cloud connectivity or something like that at certain times of the day you're in competition with domestic internet traffic all right and that had a palpable impact on productivity and you know some of those businesses were talking about as much as 20% um so you know that that was sort of the problem that was there to solve and I was like wow that's really interesting and having that telecommunications background and having those switches and routers in my home at, and I went I reckon there's a way that we could get around this i don't think anyone's thought about it in this particular way before so we started to bring together this idea this concept of 10 gig adelaide which is effectively you know a comprehensive fiber network across the entire city you know the scope of it's connecting three and a half thousand businesses together a thousand buildings 3.5 businesses per building so three and a half thousand businesses in a way that's never been done before so each business would have their own strand of fiber and that strand of fiber will be broken up into modules. All right, so each of those modules would carry different services. All right, so you might get in your 10 gig circuit, you may have, I'll have three gigabits per second of connection to a cloud service using private fiber links called interconnects into cloud. And you might also be collaborating across the city with another company. So I'll have two gigabits per second of connectivity between this business and that which are no longer geographically co-located, so they could be different parts of the city. And I also need a gig of internet so people can surf the web. And I also do a lot of video conferencing, so I want a separate circuit just dedicated to video conferencing. The beauty of it was, none of those services interfered with each other. Okay, so when, if I was doing a robotic operation from one part of the city to another and someone's downloading, God forbid, Game of Thrones on the internet or something like that, it wasn't going to interfere with that, okay? Or if I was, you know, collaborating on in the next blockbuster film, you know, there's three people that are doing, you know, some of, the, some of the curation of the video content or something like that on a new blockbuster film through the city, you can collaborate through the city without touching the internet. The price point was absolutely insane, You know, so our first customer went from about, I think it was about $9,000 a month for a 500 megabit per second service. So $9,000 a month down to $798. Um, So, you know, that price point differentiator as well was was incredible. So, you know, around a 90% reduction in in a fixed cost in a business is absolutely huge. That's an employee. Um, So... The project, looking at some of those macro issues, you know, nine and a half thousand dollars a month down to seven hundred ninety-eight dollars, and your speed increases by four times. Uh, It changed the way people thought about, particularly in this case, Adelaide, because geographically isolated, who would go to Adelaide? But now you're starting to go well at that price point. You know, with that infrastructure in place, it's a game changer, and it worked. You know, so leading a project. From concept to implementation, you know, leading the negotiations through the uh, contract phase was uh, absolutely fascinating. I learned so much, but having the resilience, you know, back to your question around, you know, being an innovative person in, in in a risk adverse environment, you know, having the conversations with people not giving up, you know, there's often times where you feel like it's going to come off the road, or you know, at sometimes, you know, there was deliberate disruption, you know, of the project because it was transformationally different it's no dissimilar to you know the way that uber has disrupted the taxi industry you know there's deliberate disruption when things like that happen people get fearful so you know having that change oriented mind and you know being you know having that background back to my treasury and finance days you know having that sort of again that anchor gave me sort of the i guess the determination to push through but also it's it's You know, I'm a father, I had kids, Um, I could see where Adelaide was going if something didn't change and I wanted to do what I could to actually put some significant pegs in the ground so at least my children had a chance to choose Adelaide as a place to start their career or to end their career. And that's not to say that I wouldn't encourage them to go elsewhere, but as it was looking, it would have been very unlikely, you know, that they would have had an opportunity to actually start their career in Adelaide because the economy was what is that? It was really at a cliff's edge. So this infrastructure really changed the way that people perceived Adelaide. Um, We saw, you know, commercial properties that have been on the up for sale for many years, you know, be bought up by, you know, the likes of Seabus Super and Blackrock and those sorts of big institutional investors, you know, and it's, it's just changed the makeup of Adelaide forever. So something that, you know, I guess, was born out of a problem again, which is an important part of everything that I've done. I, I like to do the work beforehand. I think it, it helps tell the story as you're going through the project, you know, being able to sit down with businesses and say, well, this is a real problem and here are the people that I spoke to that actually articulated the problem and here's how it's going to get resolved by this project. It was interesting to see when people got it into their mind what was going on. And certainly the, the, the Lord Mayor at the time and I did a lot of work speaking with a lot of different people. It was one of those projects that almost developed a life of its own. I could actually physically see, I could remember, sorry, the, the time that the project became less about me having to drive it and the actual business community of Adelaide took it up and went, we want this, we can see this is going to work we can see um, the differences is going to make. And it was, you know, seeing something shift like that, I'd never seen that before in my career. And I don't think it's something that, you know, in my sort of a role, in my sort of industry, you would see very often, um, but it was just amazing. Like, I, it's um, certainly the, the the most incredible project. I've had the pleasure to lead and, you know, had a fantastic team around me, only a very small team, you know, th- three or four people at its core, you know, Two of them were uh, incredibly talented women, um, you know. So a very small niche group of people, determined, pushing, you know, doing things that are, are world leading in a city that was punching well above its weight.
0: Interesting. I think you said it's the started in your wife's art room. Can you talk about that story?
1: I, I probably can, but I probably shouldn't tell the, the whole truth um i lived in there or still i still own property in the adelaide hills just out of sterling and that's sort of my switch off time you know i get home um, it was a beautiful place three acre property with a, a dam down the back cool you know a nice climate but it was you know when i got home i'd i'd take my suit off you know get my shorts on put my boots on go pot around in the garden And then sometimes go out and listen listen to some music in in the art studio that sort of looked out over the property. And I just remember sitting there one weekend with a whiteboard and just, I drank a a very nice bottle of South Australian red wine, not at once, but over the the afternoon and, and started to draw up, you know, how I could think about differently about solving this problem. So I guess... You know two things some of the best ideas come after a bottle of red wine maybe i don't know but maybe that was part of it um but and um, secondly i think being that environment that was very special to me to allow my creative thinking to sort of come to the front uh it was it was great and then you know once sort of the, the nucleus of it was formed you know like in all high performing uh, high performing teams you know Going back to my team, testing it with them, refining it, you know, starting to twist and turn it, looking at it through different lenses, you know, I often talked about, you know, de- depending on which way you look through the project, you're going to get a different outcome, you know, whether it was economic, whether it was social, whether it was community, you know, it didn't really matter whether it was financial, you know, you could look through it in different ways. So we spent a lot of time, you know, doing that. But yeah, look proud. It came out of the Adelaide Hills. Proud it came out of you know, solving a problem and I'm really, really proud of the team, you know, that worked that we worked together on, you know, delivering this project. But most importantly, proud that it actually worked. You know, this this has been an incredible outcome, you know, far exceeding any of the business cases that we wrote, you know, f- just blew it out of the water. Um, and now it's probably not a week those that that goes by that I don't get a call from Another city somewhere in the world that asked me questions on 10 Adelaide and what was it about, you know, what, how did, you know, those sorts of things. So I think you're starting, Adelaide certainly got a competitive advantage because they were first, but it's not, you know, it's not a set of IP. It's just, again, it's a different way of thinking about solving a problem. And certainly I think, you know, it'll be replicated as. As that head of infrastructure in KPMG talked about out of London, uh, I think it's coming. So yeah, incredibly exciting.
0: Awesome, that's an awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to change subject a little bit. Um, I know through some of our previous discussions, you're very passionate about women in technology. Talk to me a little bit about where does your view lay on that? Um, you know, and why you're so passionate about that
1: yeah i've been i've been so fortunate to have a very long career in technology and and throughout that career i've you know i've noticed uh, it it is a very male dominated industry and you know i've always you know i guess subliminally tried to correct that but i guess over the last particularly over the last you know 5 or so years i've been more deliberate about that so i think Having a platform like mine is, is you know, a, a real blessing. And I think it's important for me to use that platform to raise awareness. So this is, you know, making sure that we as leaders recognise the importance of, you know, calling this out and motivating people to think differently about technology as an industry of choice, demystifying, you know, what is technology. And there's there's a lot of part of technologies that are still quite, quite foreign to people. So I talk often now about you know, the importance of diversity and it's, it's not just about gender, it's about all forms of diversity. And I've, I've often said, you can't make a cake from flour. You, know, you need lots of other ingredients to make a beautiful cake. So I think as leaders, we've gotta be you know, very conscious of the importance and the value that diversity brings to the workplace. I guess also I've got a I've got a six year old daughter and she's she pulls watches apart, you know. So, you know, there's a fair bit of me in her, and and similarly with my son, you know, he's got that similar mind that he wants to think through problems and solve things, and you know, I, I would love my daughter to be in a world where, you know, there is a myriad of different opportunities for her to pursue, but I guess the most important part for me is. I do have a platform I do I'm very interested and genuinely interested in diversity of all forms just recently I had the pleasure of meeting a really lovely person in New Zealand who does a lot of work in the artificial intelligence space Um, she's a CEO she's you know quite young um, I found her incredibly fascinating as a as, as a person and, you know, I guess it's about making sure where I see those opportunities, creating bridges between people like, like her that are inspirational and other women in my team or in my networks or, on, you know, on my, um, on my radar to make sure those bridges are connected so those particular lessons can be learnt from others. So, yeah, look, it's it's certainly ramping up. Uh, at, at, when I was in New Zealand, and I think we first spoke when I was actually on holidays in New Zealand and I presented at a conference and I probably shouldn't have done this but I did but that's sort of my style and I didn't ask the 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 conference organizers but my daughter was in the crowd she's obviously over um, with me in New Zealand and spoke to the conference organizers about getting her a little badge made up um, which they were a little unsure of but sort of reluctantly they ended up doing it because I was quite persistent and I had chief daughter officer written on it Okay, so, so I had my daughter's name, Christina All, and Chief Daughter Officer. And she was loving that. She was beaming and walking around like she was the bee's knees, which was excellent. But I guess it sort of it stuck in my mind. And when I got on stage and I could see her in the back of the stage with her Chief Daughter Officer, Little badge on, and you know I was on stage about to present, and I just went, you know what? Uh, I just paused for a second and I asked the crowd, I said, look, my daughter's here today uh, would anyone mind if I actually brought her up on stage with me today she's six years old and I'm interested in you know women in technology and I think you can never start it too early alright so and of course I think the conference organisers went oh my god what's going to happen <laughs> and uh, what are they saying they've never worked with um, children and animals or something like that but you know the crowd was fort- uh, very um, very lovely and, and, and no one sort of I don't think they really had a choice, to be honest, but no one actually said anything to the contrary. So I took that as a yes. There's about 100, 120 people in the room and I just called Christina up. This wasn't pre-planned. It was just spontaneous. She didn't bat an eyelid. She just walked straight up, straight on stage, sat down next to me. I delivered my presentation. And I think, you know, it's it's those sorts of moments that as leaders, I think, you know, s- presenting messages like that to Broad audiences, you know, I certainly put a post on, on LinkedIn afterwards, and I got incredible feedback from people about that. Uh, in fact, I've spoken to a few people about the potential of using the Chief da- Daughter Officer title as a bit of a platform um, for, for women in technology. And so it's those little serendipity moments. Back to your question around me and, and my sort of passion around raising awareness around this, I think. It, it's going to take people like me, you know, that have had blessed careers, have done some pretty interesting stuff to harness those serendipity moments and actually do something different. And if it if it just, you know, I'm sure a bunch of people went out of that room going, uh, some of them probably went, what the, what the hell was he doing? <laughs> um, but I'm sure a bunch of them went, wow, that was amazing. And I know, I know that for a fact, because I got, there was a lineup of people wanting to speak to me as I got off stage, you know, commending me for doing that. And it was just, like I said, Ernst, there wasn't anything, you know, pre canned, it was just on the spur of the moment.
0: And I bet your daughter was talking about it for days afterwards.
1: Actually, she wasn't. She, she, I don't think she cared less. I don't think she actually <laughs> understands. Um, I think it was more important to me than to her. She was probably more interested in going rock climbing or something else. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a, it was certainly a moment for me.
0: Okay. Okay. So I don't really get this. I don't understand why this is still a problem in our industry. Right. Um, when we spoke before, you said this, it's not a hard labor. It's not a physical job. Right. They and it's also not like we discourage women in technology. But why do you think it's still an issue?
1: Uh, I think it's, it's probably um, a few things. And I think one is the way that we train technologists through university. It's, it's still a little, it's a little complex, I think. And we need to think differently about how we deliver university training. So um, I'm not sure if it's going to be so much of an issue in the next generation, but certainly it is now. I'm genuinely not sure all'm I'm, all I'm sure of is, is there's something that I can do about it I, you know in adelaide I was I was doing guest lecturing at the university and design thinking you know I was getting out and speaking to schools recently I've been you know doing some work with a local school and you know kids in you know year 11 and, you know all of those things are important to get awareness out there about the industry and how is an industry that's accessible to everyone and I think sometimes I guess history repeats itself and it's about creating an intervention. So rather than there's a particular problem, I just think there's an intervention that needs to happen to demystify, you know, technology as a career choice.
0: Okay. And then what do you think companies can do? What are some of the small things that they can do to help a situation?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, the, the awareness is a, a really critical part of this, but you know identifying where you've got um, any any type of diversity you know we've talked about that before as well and it's important that um, leaders are, are trained you know in recognizing diversity now whether that be you know your psychometric profile whether that be your gender whether that be your style um, whether that be your personal circumstances you know that diversity is is the essence of everything in my mind so I think what, what industries or what companies should be doing is, and certainly that was a, a turning point for me in my career, is the first time I got a really comprehensive psychometric profile on myself and, and be formally taken through it by someone was when I was at the city of Charles Sturt in Adelaide. And, you know, I guess that started my good to great leadership style in my, in my mind you know, really understanding the nuances between particular types of styles and then recognising those when I was recruiting and, and being quite deliberate in that as well. Like, not just recruiting someone for their skills, but in re- recruiting people for their fit and then considering the, the nature of the team and how they are going to fit into the team. But also, like, I, I, I can't tell you the amount of times I've, I've walked into an organisation and and covered the most amazing gems that have actually been inside the organisation for some time that just haven't had a voice, you know. So, you know, I'd encourage companies, you know, to think about, you know, your approach to accessibility as far as getting access to leadership. I think the days of having monolith departments are gone. You know, people need to feel like their leader is accessible. They need to be able to feel like, know they're going to get time you know to actually talk to them because that's important Mm. you know and having those honest conversations and being vulnerable and and all those things that are sort of contrary to risk aversion Mm. you know and and probably shouldn't be in part of my vernacular it's you know it's those sorts of things i think that you've got to be you know really conscious of as as a leader as a leader because it doesn't take too much spark to create ignition that's what i've learned it's you know the, the the fuels there you know you've always going to have some people that won't get on the bus you know but there's always going to be a, a plethora of people that just need a bit of leadership and a bit of help and you know someone that's you know empathetic you know really is thinking about their best interests as well as the companies you know that's that human side i love you know i love richard branson's you know talking points around you know train people you know so that they could leave the company, but, you know, treat them like they'd never want to leave. I can't remember the exact quota of uses, but it's something along those lines. You know, and it really comes back to that cultural element, you know, to, to make sure the culture's there to allow all types of people to flourish.
0: Okay, awesome. We've also in the past talked about dyslexia. You've got an interest in it. We spoke about Richard Branson that um, also suffers of uh, from dyslexia. What is your um, interest in this space? Yeah, look,
1: I struggled through school and I found you know the school system quite counterintuitive from my perspective and you know it's I've been reading a lot about dyslexia and the power of dyslexia more more importantly and how dyslexics minds are wired very very differently to non-dyslexics and you know there's has been quite, incredible people like Einstein and you know Richard Branson and Bill Gates and you know and and others that you know have got have got dyslexia so you know learning more about that and understanding the importance of that but I guess also acknowledging that's probably some of the challenges that I experienced through my life Um, and again it was I think I got lots of epiphanies in New Zealand for some reason but you know, I, I was introduced to a, bo- a, a book called The Gift of the, uh, Dyslexia, which I listened to over, you know, Audible or one of those sorts of platforms while we were traveling around. And it was just absolutely fascinating to learn things like dyslexics can think, you know, 4,000 times faster than a non-dyslexic um, process information in that way. So again, getting back to that diversity topic, you know, how do you blend people that are you know, those strategic thinkers that can see over the horizons with the risk-adverse people, with, you know, that building that cake mixture, you know, to make the most perfect cake, is incredibly important. So, you know, learning more about that, you know, recognising, I guess, the signs of that, but also, you know, being passionate about the adaptation of our education system to embrace that also, I think is going to be really important. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, you know, dyslexia is almost like machine learning. You know, the way that dyslexics think and the way they process information is probably what they're trying to do with computers now around machine learning. So I, I found that comment that my friend made quite fascinating, but I reflected on it and went, wow, you're spot on. So she, 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 you know, thought about it in that way and I went, I've never thought about it in that way, but I think you're, you're actually spot on. So, you know, having the... The power to think differently like that, I think, is um, incredibly important to embrace. Um, and then, you know, I've also, you know, had many different types of people on my teams before. You know, I've had employees that have been had challenges in a personal nature. I've also, you know, had an employee once that had Asperger's and a friend of mine had Asperger's. And, you know, I was trying to coach this, it was actually a trainee and you know, a coach through. Actually, coaching myself through understanding how I could get the best out of this this trainee that um, had Asperger's. His the way that his mind work was just absolutely incredible. And so if you could harness that and actually help him get the best out of himself, but also the organisation recognise the importance of that diversity in their makeup. And I think you know back to your original question around what companies should be doing. And I think education programs around diversity more broadly um, would be fantastic
0: i'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here what do you think smart cities can do for dyslexia
1: um i, I don't think it's what smart cities can do for dyslexia i think it's probably what dyslexics could do with smart cities
0: oh, that's interesting
1: um so i think there's actually a company in the uk now that's recruiting for people that are only dyslexics um, so we're starting to see some shifts in the way that people are thinking about that diversity question. So, you know, this particular co- this particular company, um, you know, it's very much focused on strategic ability, and they're recognising that to get the best about, to get the best out of people, um, you know, someone that has that mindset or the way of thinking like that is critical. The smart city movement is around big data. It's around services and integration of systems and services to have people that can think you know strategically about how that can actually impact people's lives but also can see the patterns of how that all knits together i think is going to be critical so i would say not what a smart city can do for a dyslexic but what a dyslexic can do for a smart city maybe a quote that's um quite important
0: fascinating so what's next for you uh
1: i, I don't know it's i'm I'm probably at a point in my life that I'm keen for another challenge, you know, something something different. I'm not sure what that, that feels like yet, whether that's in a different industry, whether that's doing something completely different, whether that's just pushing boundaries of where I'm currently at in my career. And I think the beauty of the technology industry is it changes so often, you know, the the changes i've seen over my blessed career have been just unbelievable you know when i started in my early 20s you know we had a room that you could book the internet for 30 minutes and you know we had our email server dial up every hour and then up and download emails and everyone will be sort of waiting on the hour for their emails to flood through and out um so uh, coming into the organization and then out and you know i decommissioned my first mainframe when i was 22 and you know those sorts of things to now we're starting to see you know accessibility of compute power is everywhere you know our smartphones have more compute power than you know the pc that i had when i was in my 20s it's just incredible so you know i i think i've got a lot to offer and i've been in the this industry for a long time and i think the beauty of being in the technology industry is you see across the business you, you're not really sitting in a silo you're actually working across the business and that come with a comes with its own challenges at times as well because you are working across the business but but also it gives you exposure to things that not everyone gets exposed to so when you're in a discipline a normal discipline area you're, you're sort of seeing you know your your sort of service as as quite quite I won't use the word silo but quite unique when you're working in technology, particularly as a Chief Information Officer, you're, you're seeing the way that data, services, you know, processes need to integrate across the business. You know, I, I don't know, I think there's going to be a movement in the next five to 10 years where people that have had careers in technology will be seen differently, you know, as far as their ability to move into CEO roles. Um, we're already starting to see that, particularly internationally. I think it's coming from that ability to see across the business. You know, most people uh, most people in technology have got pretty rounded and honed skills now. Yet, albeit it's still quite an infant industry. So, what's next for me? Look, I sometimes miss the Adelaide Hills. I miss my little mini loader, my little mini Bobcat that I used to drive around and move dirt from here to here. And you know, I miss pottering around. So, I think. Whatever the future holds in my career, it'll certainly need to be blended with some pretty interesting downtime on the weekends where I get the suit off and, you know, pull on my my boots and, and go get dirty and muddy and, you know, um, weld some stuff together or, you know, build some furniture or, you know, plant a tree. They're the sort of things that I really find really relaxing for me.
0: Awesome. Well, Peter, this was your first post- podcast, right? That's that's right. Hope you've enjoyed the process. It's been
1: fantastic. Thanks
0: so much, Ernst. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Tech Leaders Talk Show. I'm your host, Ernst Pelser. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, please help us by rating the show on your favorite podcast platform and sharing with your friends. If you have any feedback or questions, please reach out to me on LinkedIn.